And SPACs are companies that are basically given a blank check to go buy something, right? And the level of uh, of rigor uh, and regulation that's in what they're buying has been a little bit, um, as Stephen Hawking once said, it's loosey goosey. So, but one of the- Stephen Hawking did say that. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Morning, good sir. What's happening? Let's go. You going to yell at me yet? Oh, wow. I mean, this is like no no pleasantries. No, it's on. I know know you're fired up. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I... I read, I read, I read your book. I read your favorite book that you've been, you've been touting. First of all, don't talk trash about my boy Tobias. But second of all, I didn't say it's my favorite book. It's a, it's quality, simple, easy read, uh, with some value investing in Buffett. It's not my favorite. It's a couple book. of those I mean, things, yeah. But go. Wait, and for the listeners, we're talking about the acquires multiple. This is a continuation of a conversation we had in episode fifteen. Yeah. So uh, Skippy came with some, he was dropping knowledge, right? And was talking about this acquires multiple book, how it was going to change the face of investing forever, how, uh, <laughs> how it, 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 uh, it basically should change my mindset on all of how business should be run. So he was saying all this all stuff right, and wait, I was, like, wait, I was wait, like, oh, wait. wow. Do we have a fact checker on this show? None of that's true. It's a, it's a quality book that uh, reinforces that value outperforms. Okay. So, uh, so anyway, so he said all, he said what I said. I'm not sure about what he just said. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I, I basically said, look, I'm going to go read the book because this sounds amazing. I'm going to go read the book and then let's talk about it. So I read it this past week. Before before we get into into the hot and heated section of this, do you want to give an overview of what the acquirer's multiple is and what it means and why it overperforms? So basic overview of value investing starts in the US and a lot of people say in the world with the guy named Benjamin Graham, right? Who grew up in the depression, uh, definitely lost some money during the depression and became a very conservative investor who was interested in finding sound companies. Dougal's just is, is holding up the intelligent investor book, which is probably uh, a number one recommendation of mine. It's certainly top three. So that's by Benjamin Graham. Benjamin Graham ends up with a very successful and almost like depression era. You know, think of if you had conservative, frugal parents. It's kind of like that taken um, to investing. Um, really sound. A lot of people say if you're a value investor, it's just something you're born with, right? So Benjamin Graham ends up as a professor at Columbia Business School. Many of his students really take to his principles. Uh, his most famous student is Warren Buffett, but he has a host of other famous students. And there's a essay written by Buffett in uh, like 1984 called The Super Investors of Graham and Doddsville, which uh, David Dodd is also considered a founding father of value investing, although he's not as popular as Benjamin Graham. Dougals, tell me if this is too much background. Uh, there, where, there's no such thing as too much background. All right. Yeah. For the history nut over there where Buffett lays out, he says, he basically says in this essay, like, listen, I'm not a genius. Everyone following these principles, all these people that are super investors of Graham and Doddsville that are basically trained at Columbia business school using a value investing methodology are outperforming the market significantly. What happens, um, from that point forward is 
it's almost a little it's where the story gets interesting right when buffett meets munger uh munger charlie munger yeah charlie munger is arguing that it's it's not simply about buying the cheapest companies based on fundamentals. Some people call those cigar butts. You're like, it's a it's a cheap, sometimes dying company, but there's a last puff of smoke in there that you can take as you return. Um, so Buffett starts to shift towards buying more expensive, um, but also companies that he thinks are significantly more valuable. And that's where the conversation about a business moat comes in and everything else. And so the Buffett folklore shifted from someone who was making 50% returns a year, like really unrealistic or almost unbelievable returns a year for the first 20 or 30 years of his career uh, with a strict deep value methodology to someone who buys more like Coca-Cola and American Express and sees candy and all these things that are certainly more expensive, but also Buffett would argue, and he's probably been proven right uh, for a certain period of time, that there's a deep business moat there and that it can make more sense to pay up for value. So that's the backdrop that's happening in this book. That was beautiful, uh, man. Seriously. That was really beautiful. Billy Shakespeare wrote a whole bunch of sonnets. That was Let so me check good. my notes here, Diggles. That was all off the top of my head, right? So Love it. Love it. Now, this book says, like, which one of those is right? And and where do we go? And I've probably mentioned this on the pod before, but Buffett's style is fabulous if you're the Michael Jordan of investing. Like it when Buffett starts to deviate and say, Oh, you need to find companies that have moats and are more quality, that's fabulous if you're one of the most gifted people in the world at finding that. Your average investor or even your above average investor is simply not. So that's where I say, oh, listen. Let me let me jump in for one second. Yeah. Keep going. Because I that way you just said. Thumbs up, get it. Um, there's also uh, a part of this of scalability that's important because when but Buffer meets Charlie Munger, who dropped that knowledge, which I think was good knowledge, also around the time where Buffett's hedge fund that he was running at the time, right, was starting to get to a point where it's it's hard to I don't remember what size it was. Yep. Um, yep. I think they mentioned that in acquires multiple, but it was it was so big, you have to start getting into a point where you're buying like large percentages of companies, and it might not even be possible for you to cigar butt it. Exactly. So that's another thing that I always mention when people talk about Buffett's current picks or Berkshire's current picks is like there's like 20 stocks in the world that are meaningful to them. You you have to be a massive company because they have so much money. So that's another thing to think about. And I'm sure we'll discuss that more. As it relates to the book, a guy named Joel Greenblatt, who we've talked about before, liked a quantitative approach and said, I see merit to the deep value and I see merit to, uh, paying up for quality. And so he created this simple formula. Um, he called it the magic formula. There's a whole book on this quality read if you're into that sort of thing, uh, where he takes one component on cheapness and one component on value. His component on value, I believe, is ROE, if I remember correctly. He meshes those together. He does like a force raking. He buys like uh, either the lower third or the the 30 cheapest stocks or whatever. He has a fund. Yep. Uh, great performance over time, right? So then the acquirer multiple does something very similar. It improves the approach to measure cheapness by kind of getting rid of some of the accounting shenanigans, uh, looks at a true enterprise value, and then a Buffett metric called owner's earnings. I'm not going to go into the deep details there. Um, if the listeners hit us up and want us to do a deep dive, we can. 
But basically, he refines a way to classify cheapness, and then he compares it to all these methodologies. So he kind of compares it to the Buffett methodology. He kind of compares it to the magic formula. And uh, the backtesting shows... And the backtesting are from my real boys, uh, Michael Steckler at Euclidean Technology. I got to give a shout out. And John there too. So celebrity sightings in the book, which I enjoyed. Obviously, because he wrote the book, The Acquires Multiple has the best performance. Dougals, let me just add one more thing, and then I promise to be quiet for a second here. Every time you read a book, every time you read a paper, every time you hear a podcast, you should ask yourself what the person is trying to sell because that's kind of how life works in academic research or investing research is like you're trying to sell something. So I think as you read the acquires multiple, you should have that in the back of your mind. But in its heart of hearts, the key takeaway here is deep value investing done well outperforms. And that's, I mean, that's what I'm trying to articulate to you last week. But tell me your thoughts. I have, I have lots and lots of thoughts. Um, I, I think I think the book here's here's my perspective my overall book review is I think from a it told a whole bunch of good stories and I like those stories yeah. like I enjoy I enjoy the historical perspective I was showing you my copy of uh, In Search of Excellence which we'll get to in a second and I pulled up uh, Intelligent Investor one of these has a slightly more worn cover than the other right um, <laughs> I've dug through the Intelligent Investor much more than I I read uh, you know something like In Search of Excellence. But because I, I think the uh, the concept, and I'm gonna drop Chamath here for a moment, which is gonna make yeah. you like feel all giddy inside. No, let's go for it. But I think the concept that if you buy something that has uh, is less valued today than you believe it will be valued in the future, I think that yeah. is the underlying principle of all investing. Now, the way that you approach that, like, there's a difference when you get to actual value investing, which is what you're saying is like, how do you manage your downside? How do you have more margin of safety? That's different than betting on something that might even be perceived as expensive today, but you believe it will still be worth more in the future because you're betting on yes. the upside versus managing the downside. I think that's different, but I but I still ascribe to that. So I think his stories were really interesting. I think the book was a, as you mentioned, simple read, had good stories in it. I think some of the simplicity didn't feel good. I don't know what to call it. Right? Were places where it was almost a. Uh, like using simplicity to to his advantage from a sales standpoint when it was convenient and using and then like ignoring where the simplicity was kind of contradictory. Like I'll give you an example. If you if you look at the and I know the in search of excellence stuff wasn't he used that as an example of a separate report, but yeah. you have to separate out management from like management excellence. So I'll say management like uh, overperformance from investment overperformance. I think you, you have to separate those two things out. And he like combines them when it was convenient or not like there was this I, I texted you this line that was near the beginning of it that just got me like all in from a simplicity standpoint roiled up riled up i'll even say roiled riled and yeah. and coiled it was, he said unprofitable companies tend to become more profitable i okay so that as and that was just like that was the line there wasn't even context dropped around that and like if you if you want to look from like a from a business standpoint from a management standpoint if I look at my my bottom line my net profit and go okay I'm unprofitable but I heard that tends to become more profitable so let me just like go and <laughs> hang out and wait for that to occur like that's not the way that the world works I, I think that if, you have to drop so much more context I mean generally uh, do you want me to defend that lie I I your criticism go for is it. warranted go for but it. this is what this is what I've I've we've talked about this before. Like, if there's a company of five thousand people 
and they're having tough years. Basically, those 5,000 people show up to work every day and go, listen, we lost 10% last year. Like, we, we can't do this anymore. And we're working through being more efficient in our manufacturing process. We're laying people off. We're doing all these things. And, and that's all where that neglects is that some companies are unprofitable until they run out of money and then they don't exist. And that's, I think you have to mention that caveat, but there are a lot of other companies that say, we're going to do better and we're going to work hard to get back to average. And that's what he's trying to articulate. Yeah. But there's, there's something really important. I get that. I think there's something that's really, really important in that. Even in your example, you said a company has 5,000 employees, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So if you have a, I, I would even, if you don't even want to go into more detail, but just um, throw a couple commas and semicolons into that sentence and say, companies that have a generally strong foundation and yes, are currently yes. un like unprofitable tend to become more profitable. Yes, I will. I will then say you're sure. making my point for me. That's my point five minutes from now. So I love this. We're on the yeah, same no, page. And, on this. and that's fine. But this is this is my point where it was like when it's convenient, you have simplicity, but you can't leave out like some of that nuance sometimes because it's so important. Even in I'm going to drop into uh, and hold me back if, if you want to tackle something else first. But uh, I'm going to drop into the report um, that he mentions along those okay. lines. Is that cool? Okay. Yeah. So there's this uh, there's this report by Barry Bannister. And it's called Revisiting in Search of Excellence, a Portfolio and Management Perspective. So apparently the, the brief background on this was there was a researcher back in the, uh, the late 80s that looked at, at companies that were seen as, uh, as successful from a management perspective. There's this book in Search of Excellence written by Tom Peters and Bob Waterman, McKinsey, boom, boom, boom. And so he, they were saying they looked over, I think, like a three year period and said, if you look at, at companies that follow their philosophy, or sorry, that, that had the, the numbers as Tom Peters was saying, if yeah. you look at that and then look at them over a three-year period, it, it looks like the companies that actually are the opposite of those companies. So the unexcellent companies would outperform. Yeah. And then Barry Bannister came in in 1990 and said, that seems interesting from a three-year perspective. Let's look at it from a longer-term perspective and looked at it for like 10 or 15 years, something like yeah, that. Yeah, so the first paper is uh, Michelle Clayman. Let's just there give you go. credit for good work. The second paper is uh, Barry Bannister and Jesse Can Cantor um in 1990 yeah yeah and so then 23 years later in 2013 uh barry bannister and jesse cantor came back and updated that paper so it has a multi-decade view which i think is pretty cool like uh and it, it's a it's an interesting like paper generally to read we had to find it in like a a scanned pdf that someone probably did in the back of a cvs um, yeah. <laughs> but uh but looking at it, it's pretty interesting what i want to tackle here and this, that's interesting, and this is different from uh, from what Tobias dove into in, in their book, was that he's looking at the S&P 500. And so to be in, and some of these numbers will change over time, but just to, what what is the S&P 500, right? People broadly look at that as the market. It's roughly the yeah. top 500 by market cap stocks that are out there, but there are some other criteria. So you have to be, as of today, you have to be at least $11.8 billion right in market cap that number changes over time you have to be highly liquid you have to have public float of at least 10 percent of your mm -hmm. shares outstanding your recent quarter has to be profitable and then your last four consecutive quarters have to be in summation profitable if you add them all up right so that gives a foundation of success and so like if, if you're looking at companies within the s p 500 even the bottom most company has done something pretty solid in its life so far to get to get to a place that's 
11 billion dollars. Yeah, let me profit. let me clarify one thing cuz uh the statistics you gave on profitability, I think that's to initially enter, but they're not going to kick you out. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. To be eligible. That's right. That's yeah. right. My my broad point is like the S&P 500 isn't a random assortment of stocks. It's not like you're looking at the 7,000, you know, equities that are traded today. You're looking at the the top, right? The largest. So yeah. anyway, that aside, um, what they did in this report, I think is pretty interesting. They said, uh, if you take $1,000 every year, going back to 1972, the middle of 1972, and look at those companies that follow the the formula that Tom Peters and Bob Waterman laid out, which are what they called the excellent companies, uh, which includes a bunch of profitability measures. Um, and you look at the the top there, and then you also look at the top or the bottom companies that fall that are like kind of the uh, the bottom of the the dregs for those same and look at those over the past five years. Well, so so the, those metrics are important. So I want to mention them. Yeah, so, drop them. Drop knowledge. Uh, the metrics used for to determine excellent companies for the Tom Peters books are five year growth of total assets, uh, five year growth of shareholder equity. It's all five year um, stuff. Average return on sales. Average return on total capital, um, average return on total equity, and average year-end price to book. Yep. So Great. the Thanks. excellent ones would have so-called good metrics. The unexcellent ones are basically the bottom third of those metrics, so-called cheap metrics, I'd call them. Yep. And so so they looked at, I think they, they looked at each year for the, the previous five years um, before, for, uh, before the $1,000 investment was made. And said, what are all the companies that fall into the top third, right, over those years? And what are all the companies that fall into the bottom third? And so they would put $1,000 in. Unex so actually, let me back up for a moment. The unexcellent companies outperformed the excellent companies, like hands down. Like that's like Consistent, no bar none, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The unexcellent the, companies. The main takeaway I care about, but I want you to get to your other point. But, but the second one, the one that's actually more interesting is what they did relative to the market to me. Because the unexcellent yeah. to excellent piece, to me, I'm like, sure. Like, I can believe that. You're all in the S&P 500. And so you've all gotten to some level of, of excellence. And so I can believe that reversion to the mean with, within the S&P 500 is like a simpler cognitive um, element for me to get to. But beating the S&P 500 by this much is actually, it's like so significant that that's what I like zoomed in on. So I'm not, I'm not as fired up about it. Here's, here's my takeaway. My takeaway is this, I would, no one in their right mind would ever take these unexcellent companies and call this their investment strategy. All they're trying to do here is take down the book. And what they did is they did that really successfully. The fact that these unexcellent companies outperform both the excellent companies and the S&P is incredible because this is not a value screen they made to maximize investment returns. They were bought, they bought some crap here simply because they were trying to buy the opposite of what the book recommended. They bought companies that were pretty much surefire to go bankrupt. And they kept those in the analysis and set that the, the value of that purchase to zero when that company went bankrupt. Like it's incredible. Yeah. So, so let me, I'm this, this is going to be hot fire. So I'll say two things. One, uh, it's very difficult for companies that are in the S&P 500 for you to say surefire to go bankrupt. Like, like that is a, that's an aggressive take. One, okay. two, so, I would say you can't take, this is mi mixing management, a management book with an investment, like report or book. I also say is really difficult. 
And so you, you, it's hard to take down a management book by looking at an investment report. You know, so actually, let's still drill into that. Um, I think what's happening here, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if the book explicitly claimed that these companies were good investments, but I think it unintentionally implied that that's what happens with a lot of these books, right? So they're going around after they study these 43 companies that are called excellent companies and they take away the key characteristics. They're going around trying to teach other companies to be excellent. And then I think the human brain goes, oh, well, if these companies are so excellent, obviously their stock performance is going to be excellent. Their financial performance is going to continue to be excellent. That's where that doesn't prove to be true. There's rare exceptions. I'm not sure that they explicitly said these companies would be good investments, but I think the human brain jumps there. And I think it is important to say, what what's probably more critical is mean reversion rather than um, something continuing to shoot to the moon. I, I hear that. And I think, uh, I mean, what, what the book would say is that these companies had excellent performance. These companies were actually excellent performance in stocks too. Now, to your point of what you brought up at the beginning, someone's trying to sell something, right? Yeah. And part of what I'm, I'm trying to break down here is that what they were trying to sell is management consulting services not yes. investment consulting services. And the human brain can take things implicitly and run with it, and it will. But to say there was a writing about management consulting services, and I'm gonna take that down by telling you about my investment consulting services, is you're just you're using it for what you're trying to sell and more, more power to you. I, I think it's, yeah. it's hard for me to, to then like give that full credence. Um, but the, that's, I, I'm a purist that's sometimes fair, in these but let's, let's keep peeling that onion. So. If it's 1985 and I really want my, my company's struggling and I really can't wait to hire Tom Peters so he can teach me about these excellent companies. I'm the CEO of a fortune 300 firm. Uh, I mean, what do you think? I think I want out of that. Um, I want my financial performance to improve significantly to start to look like the financial performance of the 43 companies from his book and what he's actually given me are probably principles that allow him to collect a big check and don't directly tie to my company's financial performance what probably is going to impact my company's financial performance is reversion to the mean it's i'm probably going to move more towards average and that's for some of the reasons we've discussed on the negative side go ahead yeah I I actually I think that that's a that's an argument in the opposite direction because these uh, so the excellent companies if you look at their historical returns right they they were above the unexcellent companies which is yes. I mean that gets to the reversion of the mean point so if you're a company who has been struggling then in theory if you this isn't this does not occur necessarily in the real world all the time but I'm saying in theory if you do implement what the excellent companies did then you actually then might revert to the mean in a more accelerated fashion maybe i'm just saying like in general that's the way you'd use it um but you certainly wouldn't say let's look at the let's look at what the unexcellent companies did and start replicating what they did in order for me to drive financial performance that that you certainly don't want to do i mean but it's now, all it's all what okay. you're trying to sell i get whoa that. whoa certainly well, let's just let's just chill on your certainly depends you on certainly what you don't. want no depends on what you want so you're an excellent company three years later 
is probably going to have significantly improved their financial position because they're desperate. They're losing money. They're working hard to fight back to average, right? So they might make decisions during that time. And it might be like really basic. I mean, you don't need McKinsey or BCG to be like, you lose money on this product. Don't make that product anymore or raise the price on that product. Or, you know, like this is basic, like human grittiness to try and survive. So it, when you say you certainly don't want to do what the excellent companies are, it depends on what period you're looking at and how your profits evolve in the future. Like you might want to make the cutthroat decisions that some of the unexcellent companies are forced to make to improve your profitability. And in some cases, even if you're the so-called excellent company at the top of your profit cycle, you might want to consider not sitting around and counting your profits, but you know, working hard to try and predict the next challenge that's coming your way or what your Absolutely. competitors are going to do to take you down. Absolutely. I think I think that's a great point. I guess I was yeah, I was a uh, I was saying that the the playbook that you want to create is probably not the playbook of the worst performing companies. Agreed. Now, there might and be... especially the what the worst performing companies did 3 years back. Like what the unexcellent companies yes. did 3 years ago is the wrong thing cuz they're at the bottom of their profit cycle. They're losing money hand over fist. That's where you want to steer clear. But it's that I think it's that future prediction tool you know it's what the inputs to the model that led to the outputs three years later that gets lost in the shuffle here and a lot of times we miss the target by uh focusing on the wrong time frame uh it's funny that Dougals and i ended up debating so if you haven't read the book you might think this study that we just debated is like the core principle it's probably like it's it's like mentioned it's like two and pages. i found it interesting <laughs> uh, yeah it's like <laughs> three pages total out of a couple hundred so um all in all if you're interested in that stuff it'd be a good read this could be um i'll be curious to the response about this one because uh we haven't really gone deep in uh our book report uh section no, of the pod just yet and and we just did and then on top of that we layered some investing research that's like what 40 years old on top of that this is really riveting listening i'm sure well no no this is uh it's what eight years old yeah i mean if you go back to the original but this is only eight come on yeah but uh, all based on a book that's 40 years back (laughs) what's in the fishbowl Um, for you so it's news first um your boy let me know i'm not gonna attach myself to him bernie madoff um, (laughs) unfortunately passed away (laughs) uh, this week talking about value investing Wait, can um, I give you one good story about uh, yeah, um, yeah. Bernie Madoff? I, I can find the title of this book, but there's a, a book basically about how to avoid uh, getting defrauded. It's written by a professor at the University of Colorado. He wrote this and, and did the big press tour and everything. Two weeks after he released the book, made, the Madoff fraud was uh, uncovered, and he wow. had a third Timing. of his... Re- retirement with Madoff so he wrote wait hold on yeah (laughs) I'll put it on the Twitter on at Skippy Doogles I swear this is just hilarious and I haven't read the book I just think that story is it just cracks me up yeah you got to ask what people are trying to sell yes right yeah yeah oh man that's that's crazy yeah so he uh he passed away for I, I think everyone probably knows but Madoff was the Ponzi scheme investment guy for 40 years been in jail for a little bit no longer with it. 65 billion that they think he effectively stole. It's insane, man. I mean, that's just like, 
It's insane. It's insane. It's the, the one thing I'd add there, so Madoff's fraud, I'm not an expert on it, but one of the things he had to do with the Ponzi scheme is basically always have more cash coming in, right? Yep, exactly. And so when people talk about what should have been obvious about it in retrospect, one of the things is like the really consistent returns. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was like always like eight to 11% every year. And so yep. people would look at the historical performance and be like, that's what I want because that's how the human psyche works. Like the price of admission to making great returns in the stock market is the turbulence, right? And so he took out that turbulence and made it really desirable. He basically fooled the human imagination to be like, this is a free lunch. And that's how he consistently found new investors. So if you're looking at investments like that, and it seems a little too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. Speaking of uh, frauds and inflows, did you see what uh, what the SEC is starting to talk about with SPACs? Uh, just briefly, yeah. But yeah. you you called that weeks back, man. Yeah, they're not. I mean, so they they've only said some brief stuff, so it's not a so there's not too much yet. But I do think it's pretty interesting. And as a as a recap for folks, so this year through, I think it was March. I think it was through the end of last month. There was about a hundred billion dollars uh, that SPACs raised this year, which was more than they raised all of last year, which was more than they raised ever in the history of the universe. So there's a lot of money going into SPACs, and SPACs are companies that are basically given a blank check to go buy something, right? And the level of uh, of rigor uh, and regulation that's in what they're buying has been a little bit, um, as Stephen Hawking once said, it's loosey goosey. So, but one of the, Stephen Hawking did say that. <laughs> tell me, he, show me, show me evidence that shows he <laughs> show never me said loosey goosey. Ever, all right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but so one of the ways that uh, the SPACs go out is they issue warrants, right? So like the founders and whatnot get warrants, and these warrants they can. They can be, and for those that don't know, so a warrant is, it's basically like a stock option. So you're saying that in the future, you can pay a certain price or you'll be paid out a certain price um, once the SPAC acquires whatever the company and they have the reverse merger. Um, so these make a lot of people pretty rich. And so, so for example, it might be that you're the founder of the SPAC and you say, um, at some point in the future, I'm going to pay $2 a share, right, for this company. The SPAC goes out, buys another company, um, it shoots up to $100 a share, and now you've got $98, you know, minus taxes and profit. And so the SEC issued something last week that said that basically they're going to look at warrants, these warrants, and they might have to treat them as equity, assets, or liabilities, depending on how they're structured, which changes a lot of the financials um, of yeah. how SPACs could work. So it won't impact every SPAC, but it's kind of saying at a high level that SPACs may not have the same regulatory advantage that they had um, historically. Can I drop one? You got, you got something to say there? I want to drop one line, like a quote, because I think it's phenomenal. For it. Okay. This is, I'm going to say that this is an accident, right? And a typo, but it's the greatest typo of all time in my mind. And I also kind of want to say it's not a typo because it's so great. So uh, I was reading a Wall Street Journal uh, post about an article about this. And here's, <laughs> here's this quote. Um, it says, a senior SEC official said last week that SPACs might not have any regulatory advantages over the standard public offering, signaling the agency would scrutinize the failings the same way they do IPOs. <laughs> one letter. There was one letter difference in there, and it was supposed to be the filings, right? But it, <laughs> yeah. like I kind of I was like, that has to be purposeful. And also, maybe it wasn't, but it was perfect. <laughs> it's great. 
Um, hey, you get in on that that coin IPO? I, I'm sure you're uh, you're in on that, right? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I, it was fascinating, though, right? I love that uh, that t- that tweet that you sent out about it. Yeah. So uh, let me let me pull up some details because that actually it, it's it's worth discussing. I did a little poll on Twitter um, because the valuation was supposed to start. They they thought IPO price was uh, around a market cap of around sixty billion dollars, um, right? And uh, it ended up after day one at about eighty five billion dollars, right? So yep. an exchange like the Nasdaq is valued at twenty five billion dollars. An exchange like the London Stock Exchange is valued at about fifty billion dollars. Coinbase is valued at $85 billion. Now, let me try and give you both sides of this equation, right? So, one, crypto is more like worldwide. It's a asset class, if you want to call it that, that's early in their stage. So, I think you could say, hey, who cares about the London Stock Exchange? Like, that's people in the UK and Europe. And this is like worldwide. But let's not pretend like Coinbase is the only crypto IPO out there. I know of 20 off the top of my head. Now, Coinbase is the most well-known and probably the most widely used within the U.S., but in China, no one cares about Coinbase. In Australia, no one cares about Coinbase. Like, so if you want to say this is worldwide and that's why the value makes more sense, um, I don't know that that's actually true because I think there will be exchanges based on locality just like happens with stock exchanges throughout the world. So that's point four and against mm. the valuation, right? Yep, yep. The, other point for and against the valuation is the fees are insane right now. Like you can buy $10 of Ethereum and on Coinbase, they'll charge you a buck to do that. Like that's really, really high. That's nowhere. I mean, NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, it, people would laugh if that was the charge. So uh, you can say, well, it's way more profitable than those other exchanges. Therefore, it should be more valuable. Sure. But this is the mean reversion point we just talked about. Like, there's no way that that level of fee remains. That that floods competitors to the space, and as it, people get more knowledgeable about the space, they're also just going to refuse to pay that fee. It's it's too much. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious if I don't know what they're. Uh, I said I was going to read the S one. I still haven't read it, but I, at some point I will. Um, but I'm curious as to whether or not they talk about their longer term strategy they probably don't in all that much detail yeah but i would think to your point because i think that's exactly right it would have to be uh, from a fee perspective something where they say we have somewhat of a it's not a monopoly but we have like we have first mover advantage in the u.s at least right around this so we can charge heavier fees and we're going to use that to land grab and then we'll lower fees when other people like start to come into the market to lower fees but we'll have all the supply you know or demand which i whichever side i don't know how they're how they're going to manage that um i wonder if they're looking at that but you're right i mean that's that's an it's that's insane it's an insane price well and then when you when you value the company i mean their their s1 said 98 percent of revenue is fees so if there's not a moat around those fees the company's worth a fraction of what it's well and even the 60 billion valuation i think was insane I uh, was hoping to have some material to talk about on the pod, so I put in uh, order at a hundred bucks, knowing that it wouldn't get filled because it started at two fifty and went like to three eighty. Um, but I wanted to have one share just to gloat over you 
McDougal's and I. I wasn't so lucky. Oh, speaking of one share, how's your uh, your dog coin, bro? What's up with that my, this week? My Doge coin is uh, all right. So I think I have a thousand and eighty shares. Uh, no, risk no, free just... too. Uh, again, for those who haven't been with the the pod for a while, ten episodes ago or so, um, me being a deep value guy, cryptocurrencies is like the antithesis of uh, what I invest in, and. I would wanted to do some research on the bubble. So I bought some Dogecoin back way before it was cool, cool Dougals. I bought a hundred bucks. It went from four cents to eight cents in an hour or two. Crushing I it. unloaded, got my hundred bucks out. And now I'm sitting on a thousand coins just because I think it's hilarious. Because uh, I have a podcast that talks about investing. And, and now where is it? So what's going on with that, man? That is um, GameStop all over again. Like it's, it's just this frenzy of hyenas, uh, bidding this thing up. It went all the way to fifty cents. Now I think it's back down. I mean, in the thirties, maybe. That's insane. So you're you're looking at an eight x return, in ten. Yeah, weeks. when I looked yesterday, extrapolate you were that. Texted me, yeah. So if I do that, if I do eight hundred percent every week, Dougals, this is how long my stimulus check will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, my great. stimulus check will be worth two billion dollars. I love TikTok investors. So, yeah, no, it like, how do I say something intelligent about this? I am so ready for the bubble to burst, man. Um, U.S. stock markets cape just reached thirty-seven. You have things like Dogecoin going up nine hundred percent in a month. I mean, the euphoria out there is just insane and i am so ready to sit back and cheer this thing all the way down i don't care if it gets cut in half i don't wish ill on anyone i'm not saying that but i'm just my investments are long term and that would do me real good um i i just feel like every week we see more signs of the bubble but there's no sign of it popping anytime soon And the as we've even talked about before, and as as you spit lyrics about all the time, re- reversion to the mean, it's like it's going to happen. And so the farther we get away from the mean, the more pain it's going to cause people too. I mean, I'm from from what you were saying too, right? I'm I, I'm ready to to get down to the dirty, dirty. Like I'm yeah. I'm scared, not scared to get into dirty, dirty. That's great. But like there are people that are going to throw be throwing money in at a time like right now at a time that's nonsense. And if this nonsense increases even to like another 20 percent, it's even more nonsense. Like people are going to get hurt. Total nonsense. So let me give a couple PSAs, not to be like high and mighty, but um, just to to make sure people keep their mind right. Um, so first is if you follow any of this crazy hysteria happening with Dogecoin or a thousand other ones, if you're on social media and you see whatever coin is trending, understand what's going on there. So like yesterday, I was playing around with that, trying to send funny pictures to Dougals because there's all these funny memes and I just think it's hilarious. And you go into some of these and the tweet will say, hey, I'm giving away 400 Ether um, all you have to do is send one ETH to this address. That's a freaking scam. Don't people don't do that. That's a terrible idea. They're not sending you any coin back. That's one of the things that happens with cryptocurrencies. They ask you to send it their way. They're not sending you anything back. I've seen uh, pictures where people modify Elon Musk Twitter feed. So it says I'm about to give away 
Dogecoin or Bitcoin, like, and it it's between two real tweets, and then they create a fake website, and you go to that website, and you it says like, I'm giving money to the people to buy Teslas, like, you know, really well done, and all you have to do is send over a little Bitcoin, like, don't fall for any of that stuff. On top of that, with cryptocurrencies, when something goes up 900% in a month or 200% in a day, like it's natural for the human brain to be like, hey, I should check this out. I'm not telling you not to check it out, but please don't misinterpret me and Dougal's as recommending that stuff. Like it's not going to end well. And here's the question that I would ask yourself if you're fascinated with crypto right now. If you buy a company, regardless of what company it is, regardless of the valuation, if you buy Tesla, you have some idea of what you think Tesla might be work, worth. There's some way for you, each individual is going to come up with a different value, but there's some way for you to say this is worth X. And so when the price triples or when the price gets cut in half, you can go, this, this still makes sense to me and I either want to hold or sell. In some cryptos, maybe in Bitcoin, if you argue that Bitcoin is digital gold, you can look at the market capitalization of gold. You can do some analysis to say it's actually worth this. And so you can have some idea of when you might want to buy and when you might want to sell. And a lot of this stuff, and I'll use Dogecoin as an example, like there's literally not a logical way to assess the true value. It's basically what the hyenas want to pay for it. And so to me, that gets defined as speculation. And again, I'm not telling the listeners that they can't speculate, but you better understand what you're doing is more like sports gambling or speculation than it is investing. So if you honestly bought like Dogecoin as an investment, I'd ask at what price you think you're going to sell it because I don't know how you ever know if there's a true value to it. So sorry to be on the soapbox, but I just think it's important to talk through some of those things as we kind of joke about some of this stuff, right? Thanks for dropping knowledge, man. I think that's right. I think that's right. I have one more fishbowl item, at least on my side. Speaking of digital currencies. Yeah. China's starting to ramp up its efforts even more. And they, I don't know if you've read about that this week, but China since 2014 has been uh, working on a digital currency and for national digital currency. And about a year ago, April 2020, they started trials in a few cities in that digital currency. So they're giving it out for people to be able to, to buy their pizza. And then they, they've now expanded to additional provinces um, in China. And what Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, what they're coming out and basically saying is like, this is something that, and this is not going to be news to the U.S. government, but something the U.S. government really should probably pay some attention to. Because what the way China is doing this is not like the way that the blockchain-based cryptocurrencies are doing it. They're not doing it in an anonymous fashion. They're doing it by saying, like, this actually allows us to track the spending um, of our citizens in a much tighter way. Like, we'll get real-time information on spending. I'll pause there. Let you uh, let you come in. Oh, I mean, it's the typical playbook. Am I am I supposed to be surprised that the Chinese government, who one day is going to show up at my house and like put me in handcuffs, but um, <laughs> wants to track their citizens. No, I'm not surprised by this. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't. I think for like we don't even. This is not time to talk about the political ramifications. I think of all of it by any means. Where I think that uh, it's not, not interesting, but like noteworthy, I think to to keep tabs on is that I don't think that folks actually realize how much, uh, in a micro way, 
uh, how much influence the dollar has and therefore the U.S. has. I think it's in a macro way. I think people yeah. do like I think people are like, yeah, the U.S. Everyone uses U.S. dollars. Everyone will accept U.S. dollars. Like, I think you kind of you kind of get that. Um, but the U.S. dollar like dominates the globe um, like at a, almost, a, I think, a 90 percent clip as far as um, as far as a throughput like around the world. And that's significant. It allows us to throw our weight around a lot. Like the U.S. does a bunch of stuff. If we get up, if we get upset at somebody, right, we can freeze your assets because we can freeze our own currency. Yeah. Um, and that comes into play a heck of a lot. And where that there's there's the political side of that. But I think from like the investing side, it's actually pretty interesting because um, outflows or inflows from our own countries like stock markets. I'm not talking about next month or next year or anything. I'm just saying like in general, I think it's something like keep in mind. Um, the uh, the two other things I'll, I'll drop like real quick is uh, one, uh, this currency because it's digital, like China's saying they're gonna make it programmable, which is obviously, right? It's it's code, yeah, right? But so you can, it's like, a, like little gift cards. Like you can basically say like, if you wanna stimulate the economy, I'm gonna throw out $10 billion. And if you don't spend this in the next 30 days, like the $10 million doesn't exist. That's like interesting. Is now, it, is it, is it, all right, let, let yeah. me jump in. So first of all, that's the US needs to get on board, man. This is one of those things that you can fight it and lose the battle and watch it happen around you, or you can embrace it and become a world leader. And stuff like that is super fascinating. And it's a it takes so called money to an entirely different level. And the US better get on board quickly. Um, they just, they just better, or they're going to be in trouble because this is also a space where there's tons of innovation happening. And every time the U S has fought against that, it's ended poorly. So a quiz time for you, right? If you're looking at world currencies, fiat money and comparing where Bitcoin falls in that, what ranking would Bitcoin have as a world currency right now? Is this number of holders, total amount held? What's the? Uh, it's basically market cap. Market cap. Uh, five. Not bad. 14. So, yeah. I mean, right below the Swiss franc. If you denominate all the world currencies in Bitcoin and then rank them, that's basically how you get this. Isn't that fascinating, though? It is. I mean, and to me, uh, none of this is investment advice, uh, but... The, where Bitcoin starts to get really interesting is if you get a large world government, because a lot of world governments do hold gold as some reserve asset to say, you know what? I think we're actually going to hold Bitcoin. That frenzy of financial money that could come into the digital asset system when a government or multiple governments take that is a fascinating thing to debate. And we can do that on another episode. I don't want to derail you here. But um 14 that surprised me i mean i i didn't think that technically you'd be the 14 largest com country in terms of populating sub or circulating that's supply. crazy yeah that's really crazy the the winter olympics not as popular as the summer olympics but the winter olympics are coming to uh beijing next year yes and the the tie into that is they're I assume, you know, depending on what's going on in the world at that time, that there are going to be a bunch of international people that are coming into China in about a year from now. And I don't know what they're going to be doing with this digital currency around there, but it's like there could be something playful, um, I think, around there, playfully dangerous. Um, so just dropping that. The uh, one thing I'll say is basically the all the articles that I read about this 
we're taking the the skippy view of like we should pay attention to this thing we should pay attention to this thing except one can you guess what what the one was no the south china morning post oh, was yeah. like they they were like nothing to see here <laughs> there's nothing to see here they found like one quote from i think like the bank of japan and it was like no nah, this won't be a thing but it was it was just funny because i'm like i read like the financial times you know reading the new york times reading the wall street journal and i was like oh look at look at this headline nothing to see here south china morning post well here's the other thing that like i just think the u.s needs to get on board and i'm not saying the u.s needs to create uh cryptocurrency dollar but just be have a regulatory friendly environment the game changing thing like you're talking about is basically the analytics you can do on the blockchain of real-time spending and i personally don't care if there's identities tied to that or not so i mean a lot of people like that you can be you can basically own these digital currencies without identifying yourself in a way that's really hard to do in the US financial system otherwise. But I don't care if a name's tied to it or not, just to have the analytics around that movement of money is really fascinating stuff. Yeah. And it opens up an entire new world of decentralized finance, uh, which is fascinating. It's in, Yeah, it's insane. Absolutely insane. I, I agree. I agree. A country owning that is a, a beast, to say the least. A beast, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs>